Hey there, Omaha. Welcome into another episode of Restaurant Hoppin'. I've got a fantastic guest for you today, but real quick before we get to them, I have to tell you about Certified Piedmontese because this is a brand I am so excited about. In fact, I will never forget the first time I had Certified Piedmontese. The crown jewel of my initial visit to Casa Bovina was a beautiful rib cap that was so lean and tender, it was almost silky in texture. The moment that beef hit my taste buds, I was hooked. These animals are raised all natural on a network of family ranches across the Midwest, so Certified Piedmontese is able to cut out the middleman and buy directly from the source. And while I highly encourage you to check out Casa Bovina, you can savor this beef at home, too. Whether you order off Piedmontese.com or by calling one 800 414-3487, your purchase will be shipped directly to your front door. Plus, when you use my discount code HOPPEN, H-O-P-P-E-N, you get 25% off your order. How can you beat that? So what are you waiting for? Get some steaks, burgers, bacon, or other meats and experience the certified Piedmontese difference for yourself today. And now, to my guest. Hey there, Omaha. Welcome into another episode of Restaurant Hoppin. I'm your host, Dan Hoppin, and... Omaha is home to a lot of great fine dining establishments, but my guests are trying to bring something a little bit different to the fine dining scene, which I'm really excited about. They are grabbing inspiration and wine from all across the globe for dinners, brunches, and tasting menus that offer a worldly experience. So with me to talk about that today are operations manager and sommelier JT Agner and chef Gabriel Bowser from A Foreign Taste. Guys, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having us. It was wonderful to be here. So just right off the bat, I love giving the location uh, of the restaurant so people know where to find you guys. Located right off 144th and Fort, tucked back into that little area. Beautiful restaurant on the inside. It's absolutely fantastic. But I want you to kind of tease some taste buds for the listeners right now. How would you guys describe a foreign taste to someone who hasn't visited yet? Well, imagine yourself, a small town in France, walking into a little bistro, very quaint, cozy, uh, well-designed, well-thought-out plan, Um, nicely wooded decor with our white uh, chairs at the bar, um, white tablecloth for dinner, and obviously for brunch, we take those off, but uh, pretty much a French-style bistro is the best way I can uh, describe it. And, uh, I mean, I know you guys only use imported wines, nothing domestic. How, how does this create a unique experience for diners? We catch a lot of heck for that because people come in all the time wanting California wines, and obviously we don't. So, uh, nothing against California wines. Love a good cab from California. Uh, but you can get anywhere in ta- at any given restaurant. So... For me, for us, what we did for all our travels overseas, and we kind of wanted to bring Europe to Omaha, okay? And wines from South Africa, wines from uh, Italy, France, uh, Australia. So all over the world, the best way I can say it's the California wines are very, very approachable. That's for sure. Fruit forward. But what you have, though, with the European wines or wines from South Africa, Australia, is they're amazing, amazing parent wines. And I love food. My number one passion was food first. So. <laughs> I can say for my personal inspiration, I like to look at the locations that the wines are coming from and then 
and pair foods that would grow in those areas because they're going to complement the terroir of the wine while not seeming out of place. And it allows me to work within a, a wheelhouse that focuses the vision instead of just going to scatter it all over the place. You can order anything around the globe at this point. And so constraining yourself to different locales allows you to drill down into a vision of a menu. Well, that's what fascinated me so much about kind of going through a foreign taste menu uh, the, the first time when I looked at it and then coming in and doing the tasting menu is it excited me because you're featuring dishes from France and Italy and South Africa and Australia and Spain, like all under one roof. So one part of me was like really excited. And the other part is like, that's a lot of balls to juggle, <laughs> like a lot of different flavors, a lot of techniques, a lot of spices all coming out of one kitchen. But I, I think you're pulling it off successfully. Like how, how do you keep all those different flavors and techniques straight without, you know, kind of letting them bleed into one another. When it comes down to it, for me, a lot of food is based in class structure and supporting the home family. A lot of the the cooking techniques from different locales are going to be based on what technology was available when societies were building themselves up from five to 300 years ago. And the, the spices in the global trade brought different flavor profiles around, but generally speaking, the cooking methods are about the same. You have like direct heat from the bottom, you have a surrounding heat of an oven or you have steaming. And so they're, they're fairly interchangeable as puzzle pieces and uh, having a few different reference books and the internet available allows me to kind of keep the, different regions separated while keeping the flavor profiles exciting and new. Um, I am endlessly fascinated by the concept of a tasting menu. I, I love tasting menus. I love experiencing them. And for, for anyone who hasn't done a tasting menu, it's a coursed out meal, usually somewhere between five and seven courses. I mean, it, it can be longer, it can be shorter, but it is a progression where each dish kind of plays into the next and, the whole meal is kind of a story, kind of starting with lighter courses, moving into pastas, and then some maybe fish, steak, and then dessert. I, I just, I, I, I'm fascinated by the way these things come together because you're not only having to create, you know, one dish, you have to create six or seven cohesive dishes that play together and tasting menus change. I just want to open it up to you, Gabriel. Like, how do you come up and come up with and conceptualize your tasting menus? I read a lot. I, mean, I spend almost all of my spare time browsing the internet and gathering information and knowledge on new things, just constant inflow of new stuff, really. Uh, I'm, I'm particularly fond of tasting menus because they let me play with bolder, more intense flavors. You have smaller bites, smaller portions. So every time you get a new dish to your table, you're getting an explosion of flavor, where if it was like a full course of this same basic flavor by the time you get to your last half of your dish, your palate's been washed out and it's not as entertaining to the mind. Mm -hmm. And how do you use those courses to build on one another? 
Well, we start off with something a little bit lighter and then work towards things that are a little fattier, a little heavier, and onto the palate. And then somewhere around the halfway to, to two-thirds mark, you want something a little acidic to kind of wash the fats off of your tongue. And having the wine pairings available also helps to cleanse the palate so that it doesn't become just a wash of overwhelming stimulation. Mm-hmm. Right. And I know for... The, of foreign taste tasting menus, you guys offer wine pairings with yes. each course. Obviously, you two have to work very closely together to pair dishes and wines. What does that partnership look like as you're developing the menu? Well, it's weeks and events. Um, I find out what Chef has in mind, and I look for the best one to pair. So what Chef Gabriel to us spoke uh, about earlier is having your lighter dishes into your fattier, heavier dishes. Because what we typically do when we have to eat, whether we order app or salad, and then it's a big, massive meal. And we may sit down at a, two bottles of wine. Let's just say uh, we're having steak. We're going to have two reds from California. Okay? A massive cab. So when up happening, halfway through, you experience something called palate fatigue. Okay? And I'm sure you probably heard palate mm-hmm. fatigue. To where over time, after a while, you're just basically drinking wine just to drink. And my approach to wine is I want you to try everything and anything. Uh, where you start with your lighter, uh, your whites, uh, Pinot Grigio, you remember to us your Blanc or Chenin Blanc from South Africa. And on to like a red blend from, uh, from France or from Italy. It allows your palate to grow and enhance as you move through the dishes, through our six or seven course um, tasting menu. So are you starting with the wines and coming to Chef and saying, hey, these are the wines that I would like to feature? Or is no. he kind of creating the menu and then you're coming back and saying, okay, perfect, I can pair this with this? The menu's created first and okay. I take a look. Whether it's uh, soup, what kind of soup is it? It's squash. Okay, do I want to go full body white? Do I want to go red? Okay. So I can go Viognier, go Chardonnay, and I move that line based on what the dish is, So, which it's exciting for me, and I enjoy it, and I look forward to the new dishes uh, coming out I can month. S- I can see that it's <laughs> exciting for you. Your face just lights up as you're talking about this. So, like, where do you even start? When you see, let's just give an example. Let's say, like, when I came in for the tasting menu, there was a scallop course. When Chef brings that to you and he says, okay, here's the course, here here are the components, maybe it's not even a a finished dish yet, but it's like, hey, here's the idea in my mind, where do you even start as you try and figure out what the wine pairing is going to be? Well, like a scallop, like a fish, any type of fish, light fish. So you can start for a good pinot gris, something lighter body, okay? And the components of the dish itself, if it's more fattier, then I move on to a heavier medium to full body white, like a Chardonnay or Viognier. So I play off whatever chef is creating and use, I mean, we have a pretty, pretty extensive list of wines that we can choose from uh, and it's exciting and we want to change it up every month. So whatever you had when you were in a month ago, is going to change the next month. And I want people to have fun. I want people to try new stuff first. Like I said, versus a typical, I'm going to come in for a California red. No, there are so many varietals out there and I just want people to explore, expand and I would say my goal isn't to tell you what to drink, it's to help you experience uh, the many varietals out there. Mm-hmm. Well, I think one of the really fun things about watching a very experienced sommelier is they don't treat like wine as a drink. It's more like a story. And I mean, when you come to the table, you're you're telling 
the the diner not only like hey here are the flavors you might expect or you know this might be a bit drier or something but you're telling hey here's where it came from here's the type of soil it grew in here's how many hours of sunlight it got it i mean maybe i'm yeah. going a little far with that but there's such a story behind yeah. wines and i'm just endlessly fascinated by how you keep all that information in your head how do you like how do you do it a lot of drinking <laughs> 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 no, wine tells a story like you're right. It tells a story. So we ever have a good white, a good red, and it takes you back to a certain place. I've had happen to me so many times. Where, okay, I remember being in Italy this day. Uh, for example, my daughter which works at the restaurant also. There's a red that we carry. Every time I open it up, she said, Dad, it reminds me of stepping up the plane in Italy. Right? So wine tells a story, and it takes you places, and hence reason why I want people to try everything and don't be married to, to say, hey, just so red. And we do have that. We have people that come in and that all they want is a red. Whether they're having fish, scallop, filet, they want a red. And for me, you kind of cringe, but yet that's what they want. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, you mentioned that you were a food guy. Yes. Uh, first and foremost, when did your passion for wine spark? It started with food first, and I was in Italy about 10, 12 years ago, and we did a wine tasting. And at the time, uh, I was predominantly drinking, you know, the typical, like, Moscato, sweet stuff, and Zen. I'm sure we've all had, you know, the Zen, Zenfidel, the old pink Zenfidel that gives you a headache. Yeah, those. So, and she was so informative, and it kind of sparked a little interest in me. Because I started to understand wine, how to taste, how to sample, what's on the palate, what's on the nose. And that got me going. And sure enough, though, I left that day. She got my address. She's like, you seem very interested. Because I was like, no, all kind of questions. And I was like, like teacher's pet. <laughs> so she took my name, address, and I kid you not, three weeks later, she sent me a case of wine. Yes. She wrote down recipes. She said, I want, what, what I want you to do. Cook these meals, and this is how to pair them. And I invited like five or six friends, and this was years ago. And they came over, and they all thought like I was a sum. I'm like, no, she just told me what to do. <laughs> <laughs> she made you look like a genius. I, lo- I did. For that day, I was. <laughs> and then from then, it kind of grew. And I got more and more involved. And as we travel more, you know, from Italy to France uh, to Spain, and it just kept going. And that's something that I find really fascinating. Your daughter told me that you only feature wines on the menu from vineyards that you have visited. Yes. How does that help you to better tell that story behind each wine? Oh, man, tremendously. Because you've been there, you've experienced it, you've walked the, uh, the grounds, and you hear the personal stories of the vintner, the owners, and you want to take that back. And you see the passion when they talk about their wines. And so I want to take that same passion and bring it here in something I know and I'm familiar with. Chef, do you share that same <laughs> passion for wine, or are you still more on the food side? I'm very heavily on the food side. <laughs> I've, I've come to appreciate a few of the wines that I've been exposed to, but I'm not a very heavy alcohol drinker. Um, so I, I'm like you. I've, I've started to dip my toe into the wine scene. I think I'm a lot like you were probably 10 or 11 years ago, uh-huh. uh, JT, <laughs> where I'm very much into food and like food is my passion. I might be starting to slip a little bit more into the wine side. And when I have an excellent 
dinner and a tasting menu like that only further fuels it. I wanted to ask you about presentation, Chef, because especially with a tasting menu, I mean, with any of your dishes, you're trying to make it look beautiful. But with a tasting menu, there's something about when every dish comes out and hits the table, you want to thrill the diner. And, you know, they might be able to look at the menu and see the components. But when that dish comes out, it's just like a surprise every time. So as you conceptualize a dish and and you figure out, okay, here are the things that I want to put on the plate. How do you kind of play around with presentation to create this just visual masterpiece? There's a a theory of eating where I I think of the need to eat a rainbow a day when it comes to your vegetation, your meats, your vegetables, your starches. I love that. I've never heard that before and I love it. Yeah. And that, that kind of uh, exposure to color in food is going to get you most of the vitamins, minerals, nutrients that you're going to need. And then it allows for a little bit of entertainment on the plate. And so you're going to want some reds, some browns, whites, and greens on each plate and little dots and color contrast with the vibrating color theory. So like red sitting right on green so that it pops against the background and tight and tall plating presentations so that you have a little volume and height off of the plate because we're working with uh, food portions that are somewhere in the range of three to five bites on each plate so you can either spread that out and go really flat and take up a large surface area or you can pile it nice and tall and depending on which direction you go you can use uh, dots of purees or sauce spoon swipes to to fill out that space, or you can pile it nice and tight and do deliberate placement of different vegetables, flowers, microgreens, so that the composition brings color to the eye and, again, entertainment every Mm -hmm. time it lands. You mentioned that you're constantly reading, you're on the Internet, constantly getting inspiration. Where do you find yourself getting the most inspiration, both when it comes to flavors and when it comes to creative plating? I'm eating around town. Yeah. 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 Honestly, like anytime that I'm on Instagram, I see a picture of something that, Oh, I'm going to go eat that. Like a new restaurant I haven't eaten there before or going and Hey, you know, I think I'm going to go and get a tasting menu from someone that is in the same price range that we are to see what they're doing. What, what's everybody doing? What's the phrase? Uh, good artists imitate great artists steal. So you're going to go and see what other people are doing and incorporate that into your own repertoire. So, as you're, uh, this is just fascinating to me. So when you're eating a meal at a different restaurant and you, you like you're served a course and you start eating it, are you, is your brain just like automatically thinking, Oh, like that's a really cool plating or, Oh, I might've changed this plating a little bit or like that flavor really pops. I'm, you know, I'm going to incorporate that into X dish. Like, is your brain just constantly churning like that? Oh, constantly. So like a, a plate will drop at say boiler room and I'm like, Ooh, these sauce dots, and I'll take and taste the sauce dot. I'll like take the tine of one of my forks and scoop a little bit out of that. And mm, what is this? <laughs> what spices are in here? Ooh, I love the way they captured these colors. How did they get that to stay that green all the way through the cooking process? Because greens like to brown out when you put heat to them. Like, how'd they preserve that? Because a lot of these places are working with no preservatives, no artificial colors. So you have to take the ingredients and respect them on the way from the beginning to the end. So, yeah. And then I'll, you know, go and talk to the chef if I have an opportunity to and ask them as many questions as they're willing to divulge. I'm so jealous of that ability to do that. I, I'm much the same as you, but 
I don't, I can't like identify different things. I'm just like, this is so good. <laughs> so I'm, I'm envious of your palate. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's also art. And I look at, oh, sure. Me, I look at his art and I love tasting. And anytime I'm in Europe and even here in town, I look for places I can do tasting menus myself because it allows you a chance to sample a whole kitchen per se. Mm-hmm. And naturally, I'm a, I'm a fitness guy uh, from the start. So for me, when, if I go out to eat on Friday, Saturday night, I want to make sure I enjoy myself. Because throughout the week, Monday through Friday, I'm typically, you know, chicken, broccoli, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? So keeping I, it light. Yeah, keeping it light. Yeah, so I want to experience it. And when food hits my table, I want it to look good. And, you know, like you say, we eat with our eyes first. That's the first thing you see is food. We're visual. So, and and I think that's kind of what Chef has bought to a foreign taste, is the visual presence when the food hits your table. And, and we want to keep um, elevating that, um, the plating and everything that we do. Well, what I loved is you had a, an Instagram post chef of a week or two before I came in and you had pictures of all the plates of what I was going to be eating. And I didn't, <laughs> I didn't want to look, but I was so curious that I looked uh, anyway. Cause I was like, I, I just, I need to see it. Like I, I'm just such a curious foodie that I wanted to see it, but it looked a lot different than what we were served that night. Like I went back and compared the pictures and very few of them of the seven courses, I think maybe one or two were really similar. The rest had some pretty big variations, not necessarily in the components on the plate, but definitely how they were plated. How, as you're coming up with tasting menus, how does your plating and flavors evolve as you like create the dishes and kind of test them throughout days, weeks, however long it takes? It's mostly capricious. I don't really have a method of madness. It's it's what lands on the plate. How does this look good? Do I want to put these colors next to each other on the plate? How do I intend for the person to take the bite off of the plate? Like they're going to grab a slice of the duck, and as they pick it up with their fork, it's going to slide through the sauce. Or is this stack of food on the plate going to be stable so that when the server's carrying it from the kitchen to the table, it doesn't fall over. A lot of it's also structural integrity so that what I put on the plate lands on the table in the same way. Fascinating. Hey there, listeners. We'll get back to my guest in a minute, but I got to remind you one more time about certified Piedmontese. Anyone who listens to this podcast or follows me on social media knows that I enjoy my fair share of decadent meals and delicious desserts. And that's why it's really important to me to eat really clean between big meals. And that is one of the main reasons I love certified Piedmontese. Piedmontese cattle have extra muscle mass, which allows them to maintain a rich tenderness without much fatty marbling. In fact, ounce for ounce, certified Piedmontese beef has fewer calories and more protein than salmon. Don't believe that healthy food can taste this good? Just try it. When you order off certifiedpiedmontese.com, use the promo code HOPPEN, that's my last name, H-O-P-P-E-N, for 25% off your order. You will taste the difference for yourself. If you are looking for steak, roasts, tenderloins, bacon, and more, check out certifiedpiedmontese.com and experience the Certified Piedmontese difference today. And now, back to my guest. All right, I want to get into you guys' backgrounds a little bit here, first individually and then kind of how you came together at A Foreign Taste. So start with you, JT. How did you get into the hospitality industry? Um, like I said, I'm a foodie um, at heart by nature, um, and it's pretty much traveling. 
I enjoy the travel again. I enjoy um, eating. I enjoy food. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, um, I've been in the fitness industry for 25 years. So uh, I love what I do from bodybuilding to just the natural physique. My food's very bland. So when I go out to eat, I want to make sure I eat and I eat well and enjoy the menu. Um, you make so, those cheat meals worth oh, it. Oh, yeah, I make, I make it worth <laughs> yeah, it for yes. sure. <laughs> it's, you know, because you work hard, you play hard, right? I, I know that life. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So, and then the wine itself came about also as I, you know, as we travel more and more and start to sample, you know, more wines and eat. And my story earlier regarding the, the, the gal from Italy that sent me the, the case of wine. So after I did that tasting, whatever, friends per se, one of my friends uh, told a few of her friends, and I got a call, a text. Say, hey, you did a wine pairing for my friends. Would you mind doing it for us? And at the time, granted, I knew nothing about wine, right? So I'm like, sure. And I took the same dishes, the same method. I presented it. And it was like for eight. And they loved it. And I got another text, like literally a month later. Say, hey, you did this for my friends. Would you mind doing it? And it grew. It started to build. All of a sudden, I'm like, well, I, get, I should get certified. Okay, and and started doing those, and I do big events, and I think I did a couple of um, uh, New Year's Eve events, wow. to where yeah, I did one to was fifty people, you know, I I did a South African tasting, I did an Italian tasting, and it just built, and it just kind of became a passion, it kind of grew on me, I didn't seek it, it just basically fell into my lap, and as I travel more and more and more, experience more, you know, dishes from around the world, um, and here we are today, other than. That trip to Italy that you've referenced a couple times, were, were there any like real transformative trips where you just immediately, when you think of food travel, like they pop to the front of your mind? Uh, Spain. I was in Barcelona, Spain. Uh, Spain. Um, we did what uh, we, we thought were like a six course taste menu. It ended up being 12. Um, three Michelin stars. I mean, literally unbelievable, unreal. And to this day, I could still smell and taste those flavors. So that one stuck in my mind. Gotcha. And, Chef, how mm-hmm. did you get into cooking originally? Uh, eating. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I grew up in a household where my mom was making a lot of meals from scratch and ate really good food growing up and got out into the world and started cooking. Uh, started off in fast food, then went to culinary school, realized that, a couple of semesters of meat fabrication and vegetable identification weren't really enough to say, hey, I know how to do this and put it on my resume. And so I just started going to a butcher shop, learned how to cut meat, identify meat, and then moved on into the catering department of that same grocery store. And from there, one of the chefs in the catering said, hey, there's this restaurant, fine dining, farm-to-table operation that they need help. And I think that you're probably ready to step into that world. And it's just kind of been a journey of knocking on the back door of restaurants and saying, hey, can I learn what you have to teach? And I think the ref- the restaurant that you're referencing is the Gray Plume, right? Uh, no, that's one of the restaurants here in town that I worked at. The restaurant that I first got into after catering was a place called Metropolitan Farmer down oh, in okay. Springfield, Missouri. Um, it's a farm-to-table, from-scratch, organic location, and a very green building with a farmer's market in the parking lot, uh, solar panels on the roof, like the whole nine yards. Was there any point where there was like 
I don't know if a moment is right, but like, can you remember a specific time in your life where you were like, yes, I, I not only love to eat, I not only love food, but this is my career. This is my passion. Or was it always just kind of obvious for you that this was your path? There was a chicken marsala I had when I was eight years old. <laughs> and that was when I really kind of decided that, you know, I eventually want to be able to do this kind of thing. Like, this is what I want to be able to do to make a living in the world. How did you get hooked up with the Grey Plume? I went and knocked on their door and brought them a loaf of bread and say, hey, this is my offering. Can I come and work with you guys? And you're one of the most prestigious restaurants in Omaha. And I, I want to play on this level. And what, what was it like starting to work there? It was just a constant barrage of new information. I learned how to work with higher end proteins, how to do charcuterie. I started dialing in more of my baking capabilities, the fine dining presentations with tasting menus, working in an open kitchen for the first time, Um, constant exposure to people in the different stations that were on my level or at a higher level. There was, there was no shortage of new things to learn. Mm-hmm. How, how, like, how do you take in that much information? Like, I, I hate to use this tired cliche, but like, there's the cliche of like drinking out of a fire hose, where you just have so much information coming at you at once that like you can't process it all, and your brain almost like shuts down. How, how do you compartmentalize and say, okay, I'm, I have to learn this, then I have to learn this, so it's not just everything all at once. Write it down. <laughs> carry, carry a little moleskin notebook in your pocket. If there's something that you think you're not going to be able to retain, you write it down. And then beyond that, the daily repetition. Gotcha. Um, like cut the carrots this way, steam them this long, blanch them immediately, pull them out of the water before osmosis starts pushing water back into the cells. You don't want soggy carrots. You know. What do you think were the greatest lessons that you learned from Clayton Chapman, who is one of Omaha's most recognized chefs we've ever had in the city the apocalypse level knowledge of curing meat apocalypse (laughs) level knowledge (laughs) yeah like salt your meat hang it dry it safely and you have meat that you have protein that's going to last you like through the winter through the summer it's it you know if you don't have access to electricity if you don't have access to the the modern day conveniences of just in time delivery of food to be able to continue to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, I know w- one glance at your Instagram shows that you have a real affinity for bread making. Like, going back through your photos, I it seemed like before you started working at A Foreign Taste, almost all your posts were about bread. And the bread looks phenomenal. What is it about bread making in particular that fascinates you? Every time I bake, I learn something new. Like. There are slight variations that I put into the timing and the way that I bring the ingredients together. And every time I make a loaf of bread, I feel like I've done it very slightly different. And then I I have more data in my brain about how the bread came out. How many loaves of bread do you think you've made in your life? Over a thousand. What did you learn from your last bake? You said you learned something from every bake. That when your bread jiggles on the tray, it's ready to go in the oven. Like your, your proofing times, that you can poke the bread and see the bread spring back into its shape as it comes up. But yeah, 
jiggling like a fresh marshmallow. Okay, that's good to know. (laughs) Does your love for baking spill into desserts as well? I know desserts and bread are very different, Mm -hmm. but they are both baking. Do you bake desserts as well, or do you mostly stick on the bread side of things? I'm mostly on the bread side of things. I picked up a few dessert techniques and knowledge over at Grand Patisserie on 144th and Center. Um, But for the most part, I'm a savory baker. Gotcha. JT, you know, you mentioned you you started doing these these wine dinners and catering, you know, larger events. At what point did the thought of a restaurant enter your mind? When it got to the point to where I was being asked almost weekly, and I was like, well, maybe this is something I could do, you know? And you think about it for a while, and again, being a in the fitness industry, I'm up at 3.30 every morning. And to think, to take on, hey, I'm going to work at a restaurant, <laughs> right, to where you have late hours. But it's just a passion. And if it's one thing I can say, and you've probably seen it also, is when a table is done with their meal, they get up and they personally come give you a hug or shake your hand. It's a great feeling. And you hear the wine pairing was amazing. Food was amazing, but the wine pairing was excellent. Job done. And I look forward to that every night that I work. And you want to make people happy. And food and wine bring people together. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So you want to keep it going. You want to make sure that guests come back and see you again. And, okay, what's the next pairing? What do you have next? Or the table that sits there and probably sample 10, 12 different wines. I love that. Mm-hmm. And I could sit table side and talk wine all day and enjoy it. So when... When you make that decision, you cross that bridge in your mind, I want to open a restaurant, I want to offer these global wines, like, what's the first step into taking that vision and making it a reality? First step is you start to research what's in town, uh, what everyone else is doing, how can I improve on it? And it's a risk, right? Because you're afraid that what if it's, what if people don't receive it well? And oh my! I mean, being a foodie, oh my itself. Like again, it's such a big California wine uh, uh, community. So, is this going to work? Will people be receptive? You know, towards the European wines, will they like it? Will they critique it? And that's scary within itself. And you take that leap, and you understand. And again, it's the education part for me. Okay. Yes, I know you like Oregon, California wines. Okay, try something from France. Try this from South Africa, and lo and behold, I mean, we're one of the first restaurants to import South African wines, and people are skeptical at first. But man, you give them a glass or two, open and their eyes, open their eyes, and a lot of people don't know South Africa make wines, and what they do. I think they're number four, number five in the world. So, and those are the moments it makes it worth it. Mm-hmm. So the, the, you mentioned there's that leap of faith between saying, I really hope that people embrace the global wines and get away from California, right. but you don't know that's going to happen. What, what made you confident enough to tip the scales enough in the direction where I think, I don't know, but I mm-hmm. think there's a market for this and that's enough to make me try it. It's the education side, right? And... From day one, what I learned from that gal in Italy, if I can, if there's a way for me to speak that and have somebody else listen and understand and know that I'm, 
my goal is again isn't to try to to get people to switch from California to European wines, right? I don't want to tell you what to drink, but experiment, experience something else. So that was my hope, and that was my goal, and so far so good. Again, for example, we did a wine education of year one, I think July or August of uh, 2020. We had long table, 16 people. We're doing wine education, and there was two rosés, two whites, and two reds, and there were probably like six or seven gentlemen. None of those guys would touch a rosé at first. Then I explained the rosés. In the pairing of what we had, I think at the time it was a barbecue uh, pulled pork, which is amazing pairing with rosés, right? And like you see, oh. by halfway through, those guys were in love with rosés. And what is what is that like for you when you completely flip somebody's mind? The holy grail. <laughs> <laughs> the lights come on and you... So, again, rosés have such a bad rap, right? Especially for guys. I have no idea why for guys. So we think rosés are for girls. Or what I heard, all rosés to where what's level, whatever's left at the bottom, <laughs> they take a hose, kind of spray it down, and that's rosé, right? Say, like, no, not at all. Rosés are what? Cabs, Pinot Noir, Grenache, Syrah, amazing, amazing grapes. But trying to convey that to guys in particular, trying to get them to understand this is rosé, try it, pair it, pair it with this, cheese, uh, barbecue, okay, pork, whatever it is. And it opened their minds. And then they don't see it as, okay, this is a girly drink. This is actually amazing. And for me, it's all about food pairing with the wines, right? And that's what I love about European wines. Again, I'll say it again, no offense to California wines, but California, they're more approachable when it comes to standalone. And your European wines, South Africa, Australia, they invite you to eat. Mm -hmm. And that's what I love about European wines. Mm -hmm. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but according to what I could find on social media, I believe your grand opening was June 26th of 2020. What do you remember about that day? Like, what what's the most memorable thing? <laughs> the most memorable is the chef that we hired that was hired to open. Uh, we had a soft opening at 5 p.m. The chef messaged myself and Noel at 12.47. I still uh -oh. remember the time, 12.47. Said, my kid is sick. I can't make it. <laughs> oh, no. That's a bad look, yes, man. <laughs> so... Mad panic. Obviously, it's 1247. We're three and a half, four hours away from opening, soft opening. No chef. And at the time, we didn't even have a sous chef or a line cook. So, yes. So, we got on the phone, started calling, and we luckily found a gentleman that was in the business for a while. He came in. But myself or Noel had never served a day in our lives. So, we literally serve 80 people with zero knowledge of service. <laughs> so I remember going home that night and I sat on my bed, all my clothes. I woke up like that. Did shower. <laughs> I just remember getting up at 5 a.m., all my clothes, all sneaky and dirty. It was that kind of a day. But again, though, it's a problem because, like, wow, we actually did this. It actually worked. And then people are receptive. So. I, I hear that story a lot, especially from first-time restaurant owners, is they just get 
their butts kicked on the first day and it's so hard and they just go home and they collapse yeah. and they can't do anything yeah. else. And then there's this realization that hits them either that night or when they wake up the next morning where it's like all the time and effort and energy it went into making that happen. Now I got to get up and do that again. And I got to do it again. And then I got to do it next week. Like, how do you, how did you overcome that mental hurdle of waking up being like, oh, I'm in my stinky clothes. Oh, shoot. I got to shower and like get going. How do you overcome that? Well, well, the tough part was 2020, the middle of pandemic. Mm-hmm. But what kept me going, though, is the new people. You see different faces every day and the chance to actually educate, the chance to put these wines out there, put the food out there and have people enjoy it. Um, and again, it's still a hobby for me. I look at it as a hobby because I enjoy doing it. And that's what keeps me going. I never look at it as work per se. Um, so I leave the gym and I shower, I go to work and I know, hey, somebody's going to learn something new today. I'm going to get this person to try a new wine. And then. Always, almost every, always happen. So you've been open for about two and a half years now, a little, little over yep, that. Yes. How have you seen the restaurant evolve most during that time? Oh man, if you look uh, simply just the decor itself. I mean, you walk in from we open, we no one and I still look at it and we laugh at the how bare bones we were <laughs> from twenty twenty. Uh, and again, we open as more of like a wine bar, small bites, because you just couldn't do dinners at that time. Um, most restaurants were doing takeout at the time. Mm-hmm. And over time, we slowly, gradually introduced a, um, a dinner menu. And then and we had like a three-course prefix. And that's where it all got started, the tasting menu. It went to four. And by the time Chef Gabriel came on board, I mean... Chef Gabriel has taken us on another level. Obviously, you know, with the slight help of uh, uh, Chef Chapman, we now consider ourselves uh, fine dining, and which we're proud of. And for that side of town, I think it's us, and I want to say Dolce. Yeah, that's about yeah, it. That's about it. Uh, on our northwest side, and you got to go what damn town or east clear east to find some that's but probably the closest would be Akron and Benson. Akron, yes and Benson but yes. yeah other than that yeah you're mm-hmm. probably going downtown maybe yeah. Le Voltaire I'm right. not sure if they do tasting menus but right. yeah, no, you, yeah you're right you, and you guys have achieved something right definitely special especially for that part of town right um so chef I believe you came on in the fall of 2022 is that correct yeah September yes. 1st day Yes. First through fifth, something mm-hmm. was yes. the first time. So how, how did you get connected with the foreign taste? I was introduced to the uh, crew here as kind of a helper on the line. They needed a line cook. They'd come up a man short, and I came in, started cooking on the line with them. And about a week, two weeks later, we sat down and talked about me coming on board to kind of help steer the boat in the back of the house. JT, what, I mean, one or two weeks and he's <laughs> advancing like that. What did he show you in that short amount of time that made you think, this guy, this is the guy to run our kitchen? Well, the background from where uh, Chef Gable came from, number one, and we know he was well-taught, well-schooled, you know, from some of the guys he'd worked for. And I think, uh, if I'm correct me if I'm mistaken, you'd made two or three dishes for us. Mm-hmm. Um, well, then the story was we were leaving, myself, myself and I, we were leaving for a trip, for a European trip. <laughs> so... We literally needed somebody in ASAP and just, but you could see Chef Gabriel's style technique that he was going to be great for us uh, from day one. 
Um, I think we ended up signing papers that night before we left <laughs> Thursday <laughs> night. We only did. And it was like, oh, here we go. Hep, it's your ship. We're leaving. <laughs> we'll see you in a week. And that's literally what it was. <laughs> what was that like? Your first full week, like in the head role, you don't have your partner there with you. Like, what, what was that like for you? Um, mildly overwhelming, but it was also honoring that they would trust me that much with the restaurant, with the building, with the operations. Before you came and and signed on with the foreign taste what was it that attracted you about the restaurant the ability to work with fine dining ingredients and do complex dishes paired with advanced wines is this your first time fully leading a kitchen of this caliber absolutely so i think that's a really interesting part of this because i think when a lot of people think of the term chef They just think of the food part, which obviously is a huge component. But there are sous chefs, there are line cooks, there are chef de partie. I mean, there are all kinds of different people who are involved with the food side of it. Being the the head chef, that is as much leadership, I would say, and being able to control the kitchen, make sure everything is staying on time and and, uh, everybody's working together. That's probably as much, if not a bigger component than specifically working with the food how did you kind of assume that role as it was something that you hadn't really done before how did you step into that we kind of amalgamated the teaching and leading methods that I felt most comfortable with when I was coming up in kitchens Um, nobody likes to get yelled at or talked down to so I try to avoid doing anything of that nature and pass on as much knowledge as I can, like inspire people to do their best. Um, and that's the, the leadership aspect is still the most challenging portion of being a chef, um, able to bring out the best of the people that are working. Like everybody's in a kitchen because they're in love with food. And like, so let's face it, we could all go and get engineering degrees and make a ton more money. Right. But we do this because we love it. Um, it pays well, but, it's hard work. It's breaking our bodies. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we're, we're there because of a passion and fostering that is probably the most important part of the leadership because anything that quells that makes a person not want to be there anymore. Mm-hmm. Looking back, and I know we're just talking a few months now, but how have you seen your leadership grow most since you assumed the head of the kitchen? Being able to ask personal questions and get involved in the lives of the people that I'm working with. Like, hey, how you doing? How's your home life? Everything going on? Is there anything you want to talk about? Anything you need to do? Hey, do you want to go catch a movie later? Like, we all go out and for uh, about a month they were doing uh, movie Mondays where we'd go down to the Exarban Theater. We'd stop stop off at a restaurant there, grab some food before the movie started. Like, we all went and saw Chef together. Or not Chef, uh, the menu. Mm. Menu. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, had a good time of it. And JT, how have you seen the kitchen evolve since Gabriel took over? Number one, quality of food. The quality of food that's coming out, uh, the plating, um, the flavor profiles, um, you know, just organization-wise. Okay, it all goes hand in hand because, I mean, during service, it's chaotic, I don't know if you've worked a kitchen before. So doing full service, when you're seating 40, 50, 60 people in a night in a short window of time, keep in mind, so we're open from 5 to 9. So we have a short window of maybe four hours, so it's full go. And 
what I don't think head chefs like uh, Gabe would get the credit for is to be able, like you said earlier, to be able to keep it under control and make sure everything goes out. Because at the end of the day, you want every guest to have the same experience. You know, because I go out to eat. I'm hard on people, myself, because I'm like, hey, this is my one chance to eat. I want it to be perfect. So, and that's the same respect um, for foreign taste. We want people to get that experience, understand that, oh, my goodness, I can't wait to come back again. And that's what Chef has brought to, uh, to the restaurant, and we're lucky. Okay, we've talked a lot about the past and where you guys have come from, both individually and now as a team. Looking forward, like, it's clear that a foreign taste is growing a lot. It's grown a lot just in the last couple months, and I'm sure you guys have lots of aspirations. So when you look into the future, like, what are some things that you're really excited about with this concept, with the menu, whatever it is about a foreign taste, what excites you about the future? Farmer's markets and spring and harvest season coming around. I want to buy a bunch of local produce, pickle some of it, preserve some of it, make jams, maybe get a small stall at a farmer's market locally and get our name out and put things out in that nature. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about what the warmer weather has to bring for us. Yeah, and I like to, again, continue on. I like to see a foreign taste as one of the staple. When we talk about fine dining, when we talk about restaurants in general, we want to be mentioned. And in fact, I just saw... Um, I think you recommended a few guys also for who would Jack to see on, uh, what's the show? Chopped. It? It chopped. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So our next goal, I'd like to see Chef Gabriel's name on that. And that's kind of where we're headed. <laughs> you want to go on Chopped, Chef? <laughs> you got to look in your eyes. <laughs> that's intimidating. That's but, really intimidating, yeah. cooking under that pressure. Yeah. Watching. I cannot imagine. Yeah. yeah. I, yeah. I about break out in hives just but, watching yeah. those poor people. <laughs> But, but yeah, but we want to be mentioned in the same breath with some of the some of the great guys in town, and um, I think we're getting there, and um, and I think Chef Gabriel will get there. Mm-hmm. Um, but over time, and we just need people to come out and try it. Um, I guess when, as as guest goes, when you go to a restaurant, you like you always go back to the same restaurant. Sometimes, and for me, I like to venture out, I like to try new foods, and again, taste the menus. That's where you change it monthly. Uh, but we want to become a, a, a a staple, I should say, the station for where, hey, date night, anniversaries, let's go to Foreign Taste. Yeah, I love that. All right, before I get you guys out of here, I've got two questions that I like to ask just about everybody that comes on here. Uh, first one is, what is one thing that you feel most diners don't understand about the restaurant industry that you wish they did understand? Um, your food isn't supposed to be too hot to eat when it hits the table. Is that actually a complaint that people have? Yeah. I mean, uh, a mid-rare steak is going to be just you know, 135 degrees when it hits the table. It's it's not going to be crazy steaming hot, and the flavor components kind of wash out when your tongue is pushed to that limit of its sensations. So, yeah, the food is supposed to be hot, but it's not supposed to be too hot to eat. It's kind of like a good latte. The steamed milk and the espresso come together to the point where you can drink it immediately. You don't have to sit there sipping and blowing on it. That's a really good way to put it. JT? Uh, to piggyback off of that, yes, that is, we get that all the time and trying to explain that. But for for me, is I want diners to understand that when you go out to eat, make it an experience, if you only have 30 minutes or 45 minutes, there are restaurants, there are great restaurants that can get you served in 30, 45 minutes. Um, 
take your time and enjoy your food and wine. Make an experience. Uh, too often I see a glass of wine is gone within 30 seconds. Enjoy the wine. It's meant to be enjoyed, not to just gulp. And again, my biggest piece is sit down, plan it out when you go out to eat. And all the parties do understand that, though, the kitchen is a hard place. And I think a lot of times, I think we're starting to lose patience. And I see it a lot. People want the food. They want it out right now. And understand your environment. Yeah. I feel like there was, coming out of COVID, there was a lot of understanding as restaurants opened up again. I felt like people had a lot of patience. And that has started to wane and wane and wane. Yes. And I, it's frustrating yeah. for me to see on the outside. I cannot imagine right. for you guys yeah. how frustrating that would be. Yeah, and, it, and it's hard. And uh, if you truly understand the way a kitchen works, you know, if you want great food, I say it takes time. Oh, sure. That's all it is. It takes time. If you want great food, uh, fast food, if you, if you go in a chain restaurant, hey, they have a system. McDonald's, it's, hey, here it is. This is how it's done, and it's out within five minutes. But if you truly want great food, understand that it does take time. Mm-hmm. All right, and to get you guys out of here on a positive note, you may have already answered this question once or twice throughout the conversation, but let's end with it. What's your favorite part about being in the hospitality industry? Mm, trying new foods, the camaraderie. Amen, the, brother. The variety of people that you get to see. A happy table leaving the restaurant. That's it. It's a happy table. I don't think there's a better way <laughs> to sum up a restaurant, to sum up an episode than that. Uh, and listeners, a foreign taste really is a special place. Um, I, I've been there one time. I look forward to going again. The tasting menu was just, I mean, it was something, it, it was just such a fun progression. Like I was telling Chef Gabriel off the mics, like my wife and I still talk about this tomato soup course that was the second course. And he's, he's smiling, he's laughing right now. I bet it's like the most simple dish he's ever put together, but it was so delicious. And that's what restaurants should do. They should create those memories where you're talking about it a month later and you're still thinking about, man, I I'm chasing that flavor that, that those textures, the way that they played together, the, the table side pour, the presentation, that was something so special. Do you remember that? I think that's something that you guys are, are doing at a foreign taste. And that really is an exciting thing to watch from the outside. I'm sure it's even more exciting from the inside. So thank you, Gabriel and JT. Thank you so much for taking the time today to come on and just talk about food, talk about yourselves, and talk about a foreign taste. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Dan. Omaha, as always, thanks for eating with us. A Huda Media Production.